of my parents visiting. Enjoyed having them. They are uh, one of the things that I am most thankful for in my life. They love the Lord and all the way through my life have really been an anchor. Uh, No matter how far off I got, they were always there as a reminder, a testimony to God's faithfulness. I don't take that gift from God lightly. I hope sometime during your uh, Thanksgiving celebration you had the opportunity to just list out some of the things that you're thankful for. Just write them down. If, If you didn't have that opportunity, there's still time. Let me encourage you today to sit down and just write down a list, uh, number 1 to 20, and then fill it in. Don't stop until you get to 20. Remember the things that uh, you are grateful to God for and give Him thanks. One of my uh, favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is, Gratitude is the chief ingredient of joy. And if we are not uh, grateful... We're not experiencing joy. And if we are grateful and if we're giving thanks, that naturally overflows into joy. So let me again encourage you. The alternative is uh, a demanding spirit, uh, never being satisfied with what we have, always uh, hungering for more. And these things invariably bring unhappiness and separation. To some degree, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning when we get in 1 Timothy. We're going to be talking about work. We're going to be talking about money. Uh, Those of us who have jobs have every reason to be grateful for them, to God. Those of us living in this country have every reason to give thanks for the the relative wealth, the the, the things that we enjoy in in this country. But these blessings also carry with them certain dangers, pitfalls, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, First Timothy 6, as we continue our way through. So look with me at First uh, Timothy 6. You know, Paul's been talking about people whom we should honor. He talked about uh, honoring widows who've served the body faithfully and have been examples to all of us of godly conduct and godly attitudes. He talked about honoring elders who rule well and who work hard at, at teaching and preaching. Now, I uh, wasn't here last week, so I didn't hear exactly what David said about that. Uh, some of you may not have ever thought about uh, preachers or teachers working hard. The old saying goes, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. <laughs> but uh, Paul had a slightly different view of the, the role of, of teaching and preaching. Well, this week, what Paul's going to do is give us another category of person we should honor. And then he's going to talk about some people we should not honor. So let me start by just reading the first two verses. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they should serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things that you're to teach and urge on them. Paul starts by addressing slaves. Now, we don't have slavery in America today. Fortunately, uh, that was abolished about 130 years ago. But about two years ago, one of the secretaries showed me her coffee cup. It said, you can't fire me. Slaves have to be sold. (laughs) Sometimes our jobs feel a lot 
like slavery. Quite honestly, the principles that Paul gives us here apply just as well today. Whether you sold your life for a couple years at a time back in the first century Rome, or whether you sell your time by the hour or by the, by the month here today, the same principles apply. Paul addresses slaves as those who are under the yoke as slaves. That's, it's really redundant. All slaves are under the yoke. But I think he puts it that way. Point out that it's, it's a burden. It's hard. Uh, work is work. That's why they call it work. It's difficult. And at times, no matter how good a job you have, it will feel like work. There's an old uh, English doggerel that goes like this. I don't mind work if I have nothing else to do. Now and then I shirk particularly boring kinds of work. But on the whole, I think it's fair to say, provided I can do it my own way, and that I need not start on it today, I quite like work. See, work gets hard. Sometimes it gets boring. And it gets hard to work for somebody who wants it done his or her way, wants it done when they want it done. That sometimes feels like a burden, and we begin to try to find ways we can get out from under that burden. We begin to resent it. We, we begin to, to grumble in our hearts or maybe even out loud. Let's take a look at what Paul says about how we should uh, approach this situation, how we should look at it. And I want to go beyond that a little bit this morning, talk a little bit about the biblical view of work, see if that helps us. First of all, in this, those verses I read, Paul seems to be addressing two different situations. One situation where your employer is not a believer, and the other situation where your employer is a believer. Well, in the first situation, Paul says that we should uh, uh, look at our, our uh, employer, regard the boss as worthy of all honor, or as the NIV puts it, consider the boss as worthy of full respect. You know, it's too easy when we're working for someone who doesn't share our values, uh, our priorities, to, to lose respect for them. Maybe we look at their lifestyle, we look at their attitudes, we look at what they're trying to accomplish at work, we look at the way they treat people, and, and our respect diminishes, and it gets harder and harder to respond to them with respect. Maybe they're even asking us to do things that are a little shady, aren't quite right. And we tend to get frustrated and angry, resent that, and, and resist that, and try to find ways around them. We may argue, we may uh, uh, even, uh, even condemn and judge them. Well, Paul tells us there's something else we should be doing. I think there are two things we need to do. One of those is explicit in this passage, the other is implicit, it's just implied. Let me start with the one that's, that's just implied. We need to treat our bosses, our employers, with respect. No matter how ungodly, no matter how uh, different in their priorities and their lifestyles, we need to treat them with respect. We need to honor their desires, their plans, their instructions. Now, there may come a time when we are asked to do something that is, is biblically, ethically, morally wrong, and when that happens, what we should do is, is suggest some alternatives to, to accomplish what the goal is, but in a better way, in a way that doesn't compromise who we are. If those alternatives aren't accepted, we may have to submit our resignation. 
However, it should always be done with respect and consideration. It should always be done in a way that honors our boss rather than with an attitude of superiority or, or judgment. You see, our goal is to genuinely serve our employer. And it should be frustrating to us when we can't find a way to be able to do that. That's our, our desire is to serve. And let me emphasize the, the, the step of, of, of suggesting an alternative. This is what Daniel did. In Daniel 1, Daniel and, and a couple of his friends were being asked to do something they, they, they knew that Scripture taught them not to do. They were asked to eat some foods that the Old Testament didn't allow them to, to, to eat. Daniel knew it would dishonor God for him to do that. But he didn't just march into his boss and, and tell him what a godless pagan he was and, and storm out. Now, Daniel talked to his boss, approached him humbly, submissively, discovered what the goals were. He discovered that, that his boss's goals were that he and his friends grow strong and healthy, fit to serve the king. So then Daniel suggested gently an alternative that would accomplish that without violating their, uh, their religion, or their relationship to God. And his employer went for it, and it worked. Now, a little later on in the book... Uh, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're unable to find an alternative. They're told to worship the king, and they have to refuse. But they do so honestly, openly, respectfully, and they graciously accept the consequences of refusing to obey. That's, I think, the pattern for us. We must treat our employer with respect consideration no matter what. But like I said, that's the part that's implicit in the passage. That's not what the passage actually says. What the passage actually says is that we should consider the boss as worthy of full respect. This goes beyond how we treat him or her to how we think about them. This goes beyond a command to to control our external behavior to a command that, that deals with our attitudes. Our attitudes matter. We've got to stop ourselves. We've got to talk to ourselves, not allow those roots of bitterness and, and, and complaining, that, that, that resentment to take root. We've got to, to, to resist the natural tendency to build a case against our boss, why he's such a jerk and why we shouldn't have to do all the things that he or she want us to do. You see, that's merely a, a, a self-defensive process that, that we use to justify not submitting to our boss. Submission is what we are called to do. Attitudes matter. It's said that a mule will serve you faithfully for 10 years just for the opportunity to kick you once. But that's not submission. You know, don't be a mule. Submission is the key here. Submission means that we are really seeking our boss's best. And if our boss isn't a believer, what we really want is for them to come to the Lord, to find uh, salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the motive behind it. Paul says that the purpose is that God's name and our teaching, that is the gospel, not be slandered, that they be attracted to God and to the gospel. And our attitudes and our work is really how we attractively represent God and the gospel to them. 
And I think we so often underestimate the power of submission. We want to use some other tools like confrontation and arguing and standing up and, 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 and uh, resisting. But over and over again in Scripture, in the teaching of the apostles, in the example of our Lord, it comes back to submission as, as the powerful tool that God uses to change hearts. Well, now the other situation is where you work for a believer. In this situation, the problem is that we may tend to take advantage of a believing boss. You know, we say, well, we've got the same values. They know how important family is, how important church is. So I'll just tell them I took the day off to take my kids to a church picnic. He should be happy. You know, we presume on our bosses. We, we forget that we owe them an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. We, uh, we expect them to cut us some extra slack. It's inappropriate for us to exploit our relationship with a brother or a sister, to take advantage of that. We say, you know, my boss won't fire me. He's my brother. That's my sister. Well, hopefully, they will love you enough to confront you. And hopefully, they will love you enough to fire you if you don't respond. But what an unfair place we put our brothers and sisters in when, when we fail to give them that even extra effort because they're our brother or sister. That's what Paul says. He says we should go all the farther just for the sheer delight of loving, of serving somebody we love. You know, that is one of the great privileges of walking with God. It frees us to serve the ones we love and to love the ones we serve. It's one of the great privileges of walking with God. It frees us to serve the ones we love and to love the ones we serve. Part of the problem, I think, is we uh, have a distorted view of what work is all about, what it's for, why we are doing it. I was reading an article the other day about work, and it said... And I'm quoting here, The Old Testament believes that labor is a curse imposed on man as a punishment for his sins, and that man labors solely to keep himself and his family alive, or in order to enable him to do the things he really likes. See, I think we've bought in to this idea of work, that it exists solely to put food on the table, solely to allow us to be able to do the other things that we really want to be doing. You know, that's how we view work, a means to get money. But we can't blame that view on the Old Testament or the Bible at all, because that's not what it teaches. See, the Old, Te- Old Testament teaches that work was given prior to sin, prior to, to the fall. It's part of the blessing, not part of the curse. Genesis 2, we're taught that God worked for six days, then He rested God worked. God still works. And we were created in His image. The very first thing we're told after the creation of men and women is that God gave us a job to do. In that case, it was to tend the garden. See, working is part of who we are. It's part of how we are created. We were created to walk with God and we were created to work alongside of God. 
in partnership with him. Reminds me of a story of a gardener who was out working in his beautiful garden, had these wonderful hedges and, uh, and flowers everywhere, and a couple of people were walking in his garden. One of them said, uh, isn't this beautiful what God has created? And the gardener uh, looked at him and he said, uh, yeah, that it is, but I had something to do with it. You should have seen it when God had it all by himself. <laughs> you see, God dignifies us by giving us an essential, important, necessary role in working with him. Ambrose, uh, um, what is his last name? Paré. Ambrose Paré. He's the father of modern surgery. He put it this way. He said, I dress the wound, but God heals the man. See, both of those steps were essential. Both of those steps were necessary. That wound needed dressing and caring for, but it is God who does, accomplishes the work. A gardener works and, and he cultivates and he plants. God causes the growth, but both are part of it. It is Both are necessary. God dignifies us by making us his partners in the things that he wants to accomplish. I think Scripture teaches there are five purposes for work. The first is to glorify God. As Luther said, work is worship when we do it wholeheartedly for the Lord. The second is our work serves others, partly in that it produces necessary goods and services, but also in that it enables us, it gives us the wherewithal to give to those in need, to give to the church and to the common needs. The third thing, the third purpose, work fulfills who we are. We were created to creatively work. Fourth thing is that in working, we are forced out of our own little worlds. We have to learn to cooperate, to work with others. And fifth, the purpose of work is it is the primary means by which God provides for our physical needs. Those are the five biblical purposes for work. But when we lose sight of the whole picture, we focus only on that, that last one, the primary means by which God provides for our physical needs. And we pervert work into to merely a way to accumulate wealth. We stop working for healthy reasons, in a healthy way. Colossians, God calls us to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. See, if we are working for Him and doing our absolute best for Him, regardless of the pay, regardless of the the conditions, then we are honoring Him, we are glorifying Him. And that is the primary, the first reason, the first purpose of work. We have the privilege of being His co-laborers, regardless of the job. Now, I've uh, kind of gotten away from our passage, and I want to get back to it. But let me make one more point while I'm out here. A couple of weeks ago, uh, a group of uh, Christian teachers approached me and said, what does all of this mean as to whether we should strike? There's a strike coming. And how do we as Christians look at it? Is it right for Christians to strike? Now, that's a hard question. Scripture is very clear that a Christian is to honor his employee. 
But things are a little different here today than they were in first century Rome. We do have the freedom in this country to address inequities through collective action. That was not an option available to a slave in Rome. We do have the, the freedom to quit a job and to take another job. Again, that was not as common for a slave in Rome. So I have difficulty giving you a definitive answer. I think that's something that each of you have to work out with God to think through these principles. But I do know a couple of things. One is that we can never be motivated by greed and avarice. Two, that the way we conduct ourselves is critical. We can never become strident and attacking. We must always be respectful, considerate. We can never refuse to see the needs and the desires of those who are on the other side. Our goal has to be justice, not victory. A justice that can lay a foundation that we can build on, a foundation of trust that we can develop. Our ministry, just as Jesus was, is reconciliation, bringing people together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, like father, like son. Anyway, let's get back to our passage, and I'll try to do better at staying with it. Uh, We just finished Paul telling us who to honor, honor honor widows, honor elders, honor employers. And now he talks about some people that he doesn't honor at all, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Like I said, Paul doesn't show a lot of respect. He uses very strong and harsh words of them. He says they know nothing. Uh, it's, they're ignorant. They're ignoramuses. They're uh, conceited. Foolish. Apparently, these false teachers were uh, doing several things. One, they were contradicting the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus teaches very clearly in Matthew 6. They were not to worry about food, not to worry about clothing or, or, or shelter, money. God will take care of these things. We're not to, to get sucked into living our life like the rest of the world lives it, anxious and, and worried about these things. Well, apparently, these teachers were contradicting that through their, their example and through their teaching. They were trying to bring the focus back onto these things, back onto wealth, back onto material things. And one of the things they were doing was they were keeping the body stirred up, keeping it confused. Paul calls them word fighters. They could argue you in circles about this little doctrine and about that little doctrine. And they could, they could make you suspicious about what this guy really thinks about you. And, and these people who, who, who don't agree, you know, they're somebody we should keep an eye on. And they breed envy and suspicion and separation, division within the body. People watch out for anybody who pulls the body apart rather than brings it together. But perhaps the worst thing they were doing was they were teaching that godliness, a relationship with God, was merely a means to get rich. The insidious problem with that is that 
a relationship with God, which is what we were created for, is what our hearts long for, is merely a means to an end. They were acting as if money, wealth, riches could bring satisfaction. God is just a means to that end. Let me read you a quote that's a little more recent than first century. It's in our century. In fact, it's a couple years ago. This is from a support letter from a guy that used to preach on television. It says, There is no better way to ensure your own financial security than to to plant some seed money in God's work. His law of sowing and reaping guarantees you a harvest of much more than you sow. Have you limited God to your present income, business, house, car? There is no limit to God's plenty. Write on the enclosed slip what you need from God. The salvation of a loved one, healing, a raise in pay, a better job, a newer car or home, sale or purchase of a property, guidance in business or investment, whatever you need. Enclose your slip with your seed money. Expect God's material blessings in return. Now, this kind of theology exists for one purpose, to separate you from your money. It's a means to fleece the sheep. But the real danger of it is that it presents a relationship with God as purely a means to get at what will really satisfy you, money, things. Rather than realizing that the relationship with God is the end, not the means. Paul corrects this, starting with verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where the gain is. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul says godliness or or godlikeness is not the means to the end of financial gain. It is the end that makes financial gain irrelevant. See, it is the goal in and of itself. But unless it is accompanied by contentment, we can quickly and easily get sucked into the endless, empty uh, rat race seeking wealth. Paul goes on to talk about those who want to get rich, who want to be wealthy. But before he gets into that, uh, he gives us the big picture. He uses a saying from his day. We brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out. That's a paraphrase of what Job said. Naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Saw a modern paraphrase of that on a t-shirt. It said, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. See, the bottom line is you cannot take it with you heard some stories about people who've tried to take it with them. One uh, very wealthy man decided that he wanted to be buried in his Cadillac. So as they were lowering the Cadillac into the ground with his body in it, one of the guys that was at the funeral leans over to the other one and says, boy, that's really living. <laughs> Another story I heard about a very wealthy man. He wanted to take it with him, so he put in his will that all of his money was to be buried with him. So in order to make sure this happened, he gave all of his money to his minister. And then he asked his attorney to check up to make sure the minister put the money in the coffin. Well, as the coffin was being lowered into the ground, the attorney, who was running a little late, came up to the uh, preacher and he said, Now, are you sure you put all the money in there? The minister said, Absolutely. I wrote him a personal check for the entire amount. (laughs) 
See, the reality is you cannot take it with you. In fact, it wouldn't do you any good if you could. Because, see, our currency is not honored in heaven. In fact, uh, they use gold to pave the streets there. Reality is that money is not at all important in heaven. But the further reality is that it's not really all that important here when it comes to happiness, when it comes to peace, when it comes to satisfaction. And unless we see that clearly, unless we get a grasp on that, it messes us up here and now. We begin to be sucked into a lifestyle that does us damage. It's exactly what what Paul is is talking about. Verse 9, 9 and 10. He says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. See, verse 10 is is so often misquoted. It does not say money is the root of all evil. As if money in itself were, were a bad thing. Now, money is merely a tool that can be used to love people, can be used to worship God. And in a couple of weeks, whenever David gets to verses 17 through 19, we talk about using money well, using money to lay up treasures in heaven. What verse 10 actually says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of of evil, That desire for money, that hunger to have money is what traps us and pulls us away from what is truly important. Paul is pointing out two enormous problems with wanting to get rich with the love of money. And then he gives us two solutions. First, the problems. The first problem is that the desire to get rich is an insa- insatiable hunger. It is an enslaving trap. Paul calls it a a trap that leads us to do or to make foolish or literally unintelligent and harmful choices that ruin a person's life. It's an old Roman saying, the love of money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. You can never have enough. And in fact, uh, often it's those who are the wealthiest that are most enslaved to that drive to get more and more and more. But even those of us who have less relatively, how much is enough? And you may say, well, if I only had enough for a new car, then I'd be happy. That would be enough. But would it? Or if I only had enough to, to, to get out of debt, then I'd be happy. Well, was it happiness that got you in debt? Was it contentment that, that caused you to overspend? The uh, Roman Epicurus said it well. He said, to whom little is not enough, nothing will be enough. We take risks that we can't afford, just hoping it'll come out right for us. We take jobs that we hate just to get rich. We uh, treat our spouses hatefully or harshly because they don't make enough or they spend too much for us to get rich. We ignore our children. We miss their growing up because we're out there focused on making money, on pursuing riches. 
We treat those that are wealthy preferentially, regardless of their, their character, hoping that somehow it'll work back around and, and pay off. We uh, buy things we can't afford just to feel rich. We, we vote for um, politicians who promise to line our pockets, who, who will improve the economy regardless of their moral and ethical character. And then we watch as our country declines morally and ethically. Again, wanting to get rich, as verse 9 says, makes us do unintelligent and harmful things. And it leads to ruin and destruction. We live empty, unhappy, dissatisfied lives, always wanting more, never even enjoying what we do have. Well, the second inevitable problem was verse 10, where he says, love of money distracts us from what is truly important. It distracts us from our relationship with God. And when money or anything comes between us and our relationship with God, then we're open to all kinds of problems, all kinds of evils. The relationship with God, he says, uh, some people abandon their faith. And have pierced themselves, literally impaled themselves with all kinds of grief. Jesus made it clear, Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve two masters. You will cling to one and ignore the other. You cannot serve God and riches. You may try to serve both. But God does not share. And God will not force himself upon anyone. And if you choose to serve both, he will give you over to your love of money. And it will ruin your life. It will be a root that you will impale yourself on. It will be a, a root that will lead to foolish, destructive, damaging choices. All kinds of evil grow out of that root. You know, how many divorces are merely the fruit of that love of money? How much emotional abandonment is really just grows out of that love of money. How much abuse is merely a result of the weariness and the frustration of not being able to fulfill that love of money? And how many of us here today have been seduced either in part or in whole to that love of money? How many of us are unable to draw close to God, unable to enjoy the intimacy with Him that our hearts long for because we refuse to give up the God of wealth and riches, to turn away from that God and turn to the true God. But Paul gives us the two solutions. I'm going to steal a little bit from David's passage next week, but I can't help it. Verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Paul says the solutions are two things. One, to flee. That means literally to run away from. The other solution was to pursue. It means literally to run toward. He says flee these things. Flee the love of money. Flee the desire to get rich. Run away as far as you can, as fast as you can. Run for your lives. How do you do that? We have a society that's saturated with this. Well, he already told us back in verse 8. He said, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. See, the only way to flee wanting to get rich is to be content with what we've already been given. 
And the only way to be content with what we've been given is to be grateful for it, to give thanks for it. And as we give genuine thanks, we enjoy what He has given. And we recognize that He is the one who gave it to us. He provides for us and He has promised to take care of us. So often it's fear that drives that desire to get rich. The only thing that can offset that fear is trust. Trusting Him is the only thing that can allay those fears. Lead us to worship. Lead us to enjoy what He's given us. And worship Him for His generosity and His goodness. Worship and fear are antithetical. They cannot exist at the same time. Fact is, rather than being enslaved by that insatiable desire, when we give thanks, we are filled with satisfaction we can be happy. Uh, there's an old Roger Miller song that I used to sing to my children when they were unhappy. Uh, its title of it is, uh, You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. I don't know how many of you know that. I won't uh, inflict the entire song on you. <laughs> but I'll sing you a verse just so you know it, and you'll also know why I don't need singing up here. But the song goes like this. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. No, you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. But you can be happy if you've a mind to it. All you got to do is put your mind to it. Knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. I know all the verses, but I'll <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> but Roger Miller does not supply the theology, but he's right. We can be happy right now. All we have to do is to turn our hearts in gratitude to God for His generosity and in trust of His constant care. Knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. We can be happy right here, right now. Well, the second solution was to run toward, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. If you remember... The uh, the first problem was that insatiable hunger. The solution was contentment. The second problem was a distraction from the things that are important. Relationship with God. Well, these things that Paul is pointing out now are the things that will lead us back to what's important. Back to that relationship with God and with other people. Relationships really are the key to, to satisfaction. John Stott wrote... It is never in the power of things to bring true happiness. Happiness always comes from personal relationships. Our true wealth is in the love and the fellowship of men. And our most precious possession is our friendship with God, made possible through Jesus Christ. See, those things that Paul is holding out to us are the things that lead us into that relationship with God. It says, pursue righteousness and godliness, a godly character. Godly relationships are based on the other things. Pursue um, trust, love, patience, gentleness. These are the things we're throwing your time and your focus and your energy into. Pursue these things with all of the time and energy that you used to pursue wealth and riches. Our time is gone See the guys back there are getting ready to serve us communion. We're going to, to, to share in communion together. And I thought this is just a, an appropriate time for us uh, to, to share communion. Uh, the, the week after Thanksgiving, after looking at a passage like this, which is so focused on responding to God gratefully, with contentment, 
And uh, what we want to do is to use this time of communion to acknowledge what we have in Christ, to be grateful. So I'm going to just close in prayer. I can see that Celebrate's coming up already as well. For those of you who are new here, when we uh, take communion together, it's our practice for everyone to hold it and we'll take it all together. You're sure welcome to join us. If you're a believer, you're welcome to to share in communion with us, even if you're new or or, or just a visitor. But let's just uh, close our our time in the Word in prayer. Prepare our hearts to receive the, the Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us, for this country, for the uh, the wealth that you've given each of us, regardless of where we stand uh, relative to each other. Lord, we thank you, though, especially for the relationship that you've made possible with yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, his dying for us on the cross, as proof that you love us, as proof that you are committed to us for eternity, but also as the means through which all the obstacles to drawing close to you have been cleared. Or draw our hearts to what's truly important. Free us, protect us, insulate us from the world that around us that would, would encourage us to look at you as a means to wealth and that would set our hearts on having money or things. Instead, draw our hearts to loving you and to loving each other. Lord, again, we thank you that you've demonstrated so clearly by your death, by your love, what is important. We worship you, Lord. Amen.